Chapter 14 of The Gladstone Colony, an unwritten chapter of Australian history, by James Francis Hogan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Major de Winton, oldest living Gladstonian. Fortunately, the officer who was appointed to command of the first military detachment sent to the new settlement formed at Port Curtis by Colonel Barney, and to whose duty it fell to hoist the British flag on the spot where the town of Gladstone now stands, still survives in our midst. He was then Lieutenant de Winton of the 99th. He is now Major de Winton, a genial and gracious veteran, a familiar and respected figure in London military and philanthropic circles, a former editor of the United Service magazine, and for many years a member of the governing body of the Junior United Service Club. His very interesting reminiscences of service in various parts of the world are now in course of publication in the regimental periodical The Nines. Major de Winton was gazetted as Ensign of the 99th in July 1841. Quote, a final line regiment, he writes, never wore Her Majesty's uniform than the 99th when they marched into Chatham in 1841. These were the pre-railway days, when the words route and march had more literal significance than now. At the time of the arrival of the 99th, the Chatham barracks were exceptionally crowded, and for some time the officers' mess was at the Sun, the well-known coaching house kept by Winch. Good old Sun! Who of those quartered in Chatham in the 40s does not remember the supper laid out for the passengers by the Dover Mail? The egg flip, a speciality of the house, the parting glass of that alluring compound, exchanged with travellers, seen often for the first time and for the last, while the expostulating guard, hardly appeased by the proffered glass, declares that he will never be able to make up the time in the next stage. And as if it were yesterday, I remember the midday coach drawing up at the sun and depositing me with my kit and traps. A captain of the corps gave me a friendly greeting and proffered his services to accompany me to the barracks, to report myself to the colonel. How lasting are first impressions! That kindly greeting, the introductions to those who became, to me, brother officers indeed, will never be effaced from my memory. End quote. The Chatham of Major de Winton's early days, viewed from the standpoints of sobriety and morality, was a very different place to the well-ordered Chatham of today. Quote, Imagine a number of young fellows just released from the strict discipline of school, suddenly severed from the controlling influences of family associations, and in many instances, supplied with money, with injudicious liberality, launched amidst the temptations and the demoralising associations of a garrison town, and we can readily realise the result, dissipation, debauchery, and the utter ruin of not a few. The scenes I have witnessed would, if described in detail, be derided by the novelist. I have known twelve dozen of wine sent after mess to a subaltern's room, and have seen the morning sun revealing prostrate forms in hopeless intoxication amidst a wreck of furniture and broken bottles. There were low public houses which a lax police suffered to be open until all hours, or, what was worse, though nominally closed during the prohibited hours, open to all who possessed the watchword and the golden key, where orgies indescribable were enacted. Large indeed must have been the number of young men, the pride of their parents, with bright prospects before them, who succumbed to the horrible fascinations which allured those who desired, ill-omened expression, to see life. Sheerness was the next place in which Major de Winton was quartered, and there too 
the apostle of temperance and the social reformer might have found plenty of material to work upon. Quote, in those days, the excellent institutions called sailors' homes were unknown, and the sailor landing with a pocketful of money fell an easy, though it must be admitted, a not unwilling, prey to the sirens of the seaports. Among the too many licensed houses of entertainment was one known as the Never, from a current belief that it had never been closed day or night since it was first opened, a period in the remote past. End quote. In April 1843, Major de Winton was ordered to take up duty as an officer to the military guard on the convict ship Constant, bound for Van Diemen's Land, or Tasmania, as it is now called. The surgeon's superintendent of the vessel, Mr. J.S. Hampton, became, in after years, Governor of Western Australia. Describing the voyage, the Major observes, quote, Contrary winds drove us out of our course, and we sighted the island of Fernando de Noronha, the Brazilian convict settlement, which has been described as the convict's Eden. Whether it was that fame of this settlement had reached the ears of our convicts, and a desire had seized them to put it to practical test, I know not. But at this time we discovered a plot to take the ship, the plan of which, to put it mildly, did not include the landing of the officers and guard on the terrestrial paradise then in view. The leaders of the plot were flogged, isolated and put in heavy irons, and, needless to say, our vigilance was thenceforth redoubled. I have often thought that, with systematic combination, the taking of a ship by convicts might, in those days, have been achieved without very much difficulty. The old flint muskets were to the last degree unreliable, and as for the cutlasses with which the sentries were armed, they were little better than pieces of hoop iron. End quote. After a passage of 110 days, the Constant arrived at Hobart, the Tasmanian metropolis, and landed her prisoners. The governor of the colony at that time was the renowned Sir John Franklin. Quote, he was about leaving for England, having already projected the Arctic voyage, in which he and his intrepid companions perished, martyrs to scientific research, in the regions of eternal ice. From Hobart, Major de Winton proceeded to Sydney and joined the Australian headquarters of his regiment. Quote, Although transportation to New South Wales had ceased, there were a considerable number of convicts still serving their time on the public works, and our regiment was to a large extent scattered in detachments in various localities, either as guards over stockades or as contingent aids to the civil power. Many of the officers held quasi-civil appointments, receiving for these extra pay from the colonial government. In the early days of the colonies, administrative officers fell to military officers, and rightly so, as their training caused them to exact discipline over those over whom they were set, and their magisterial decisions were, from habit, framed on the lines of military courts, where an equity and law are harmoniously blended. Colonial history bears testimony to the equitable rule of military governors, and in penal settlements the rule of the military officer, strict as it often was, was referred to that of the civilian by the prisoners themselves, as they realised that the former had no subtle aims to serve, or sordid ends to gain. End quote. The soldier's life at an outlying station in the early days of Australian colonisation is thus depicted by Major de Winton. Quote, Military duties were nominal. Of recreation, there was little. There would be two or three shanties called hotels where colonial beer, a vile and adulterated compound, and colonial rum, a fiery liquor eclept old stringy, were vended, whither the draymen and stockmen resorted, and where the bullock drivers put up on their way down to the coast with the wool clip of the season, and on their way back to the station with stores. 
on their way down they had their wages sometimes for twelve months in the form of an order by the squatter on his sydney agent and it was no uncommon thing for the bullock driver to hand this order to the landlord with the request to sweat this down five pounds the host would collect all the available loafers the bullock driver would stand treat take a glass or two with every newcomer and soon succumb to the effects of the villainous liquor after forty-eight hours of mingled intoxication and slumber the landlord would tell him that he had been there for a week and had gone beyond his margin of cash the driver would then yoke up his bullocks once more and after a parting glass all round resume his journey to the coast these so-called hotels were the centre of attraction in every small settlement and as wages were high stockmen and other visitors were always ready to stand treat notably to the soldier who was popular and regarded as bon camarade End quote. Major de Winton's colonial experience has furnished him with a budget of amusing anecdotes. Here is a humorous incident of the Maori Wars in New Zealand. Quote, From time to time, conferences were held with so-called friendly chiefs, though the direction in which their friendship tended was not always ascertainable. At one of these conferences, Colonel Reader's Note Space Reader's Note Ends presiding, a friendly chief, interrogated through the medium of the interpreter by the colonel on a point which he had deemed of much moment added some words which seemed to convey derision or disapprobation and rising took up his spear threw his rug around him and with haughty mane left the conference turning to the interpreter the colonel asked him what the chief had said oh nothing replied the interpreter he seemed put out and was talking nonsense the colonel i insist on knowing what he said it is for me to judge of the relevance to the subject and as this chief has been represented to me as one whose opinions have great weight in the councils of the friendly tribes, I attach much importance to his views. The interpreter. I assure you, sir, there was nothing in what he said. In fact, he spoke so indistinctly that I hardly caught his words. The colonel. Mr. Blank. As a sworn interpreter attached to Her Majesty's forces, you are amenable to the articles of war, and I must warn you that any dereliction of your duty may be attended with very serious consequences to yourself. The chief spoke distinctly, and I insist upon his words being faithfully interpreted. Mr. Blank, to one of the officers, take down the interpreter's exact words in order that they may be faithfully recorded on the minutes of this meeting. The interpreter, very well, sir, if you will have it, the chief says, you are an old ass. End quote. Attempts to impose the habits and customs of civilization upon aboriginal races are not unfrequently disastrous. They are also occasionally comical, as the following anecdote serves to show. Quote, A settler about to be married invited his mother and female relatives to visit the new house he had built. A number of blacks were employed about the place, and as these were always primitively attired, or in other words, not clothed at all he was much exercised on the subject in view of the early arrival of his guests in his perplexity he could think of no covering but sheets of newspapers and on the appointed day he clothed his dusky band in the sheets of the sydney morning herald one to the back and one to the front with a strip of bark for a girdle it unluckily happened to be a very windy day and as the boat conveying the ladies approached the blacks were seen engaged in frantic efforts to keep down their improvised literary petticoats. The scene was irresistibly ludicrous. End quote. Major de Winton was at headquarters in Sydney when Robert Lowe reached the summit of his colonial fame in that city. On the day that he was returned for Sydney as the leader and orator of the popular anti-transportation party, the troops were confined to barracks and the barrack gates closed. 
standing on the coping stone of the officers' quarters, the major was an eye-witness of the surging and cheering crowd that unyoked the horses and drew their newly elected member in triumph through the streets of the metropolis, the first and only occasion during his long political career in both hemispheres on which Robert Lowe was the object and central figure of such a popular demonstration. In after years, when he was being mobbed and hooted in Whitehall, that day on which he was the idol of the Sydney populace must have frequently flashed on his recollection. Coming to the circumstances and instances of his connection with Mr. Gladstone's new colony on the shores of Port Curtis, Major de Winton remarks, quote, Consequent upon the cessation of transportation and the loss of government expenditure, there was for a long time a dearth of labour and a general depression in New South Wales, but firm in their trust that the beautiful land of their adoption would, when freed from the stigma attaching to a penal colony, attract from the old country, both capital and labour, the colonists bore with fortitude their trials and privations. Meanwhile at home, the cessation of transportation to New South Wales, the Willem principal dumping ground for the criminals of the United Kingdom, was being felt, and the attention of the imperial government was turned to the selection of a spot whereupon to establish a new penal settlement. Port Curtis was fixed upon. Lying several degrees north of the most northerly settlement of New South Wales, it was deemed that no exception could be taken to the establishment of a penal colony in a region so remote. In 1847, instructions to occupy a suitable site in the neighbourhood of Port Curtis and to make arrangements for the reception of convicts reached Sydney, and officers civil and military were appointed to form the cadre of government of the new colony. Colonel Barney, R.E., was appointed superintendent. The military force consisted of a detachment of the 99th Regiment, Captain Day in command. Lieutenant de Winton, subaltern. Two ships, the Lord Auckland and the Thomas Lowry, were taken up for the conveyance of the party. The Lord Auckland took Colonel Barney, the civil staff, Captain Day, a portion of the military, some artisans and mechanics. The wives and families of several of the officers accompanied them, as it was then thought that the new colony would be the future home of those appointed to the chief officers. The Lord Auckland was the first to sail, the Thomas Lowry with the remainder of the military and stores, leaving about a fortnight later. When lying in harbour, the Bramble, Lieutenant Yule, RN, commander, arrived, and as she had been surveying on the North Australian coast, our captain went on board to gain information respecting the harbour of Port Curtis, at that time only roughly chartered. I accompanied him, and I have a lively recollection of the visit. The Bramble swarmed with cockroaches, and with these we had literally to contend at the breakfast, to which Yule had kindly invited us. The medical officer of the expedition having gone in the Lord Auckland, in view of eventualities, I applied for a doctor for our party, and just before sailing, an assistant colonial surgeon came on board, having been hunted up at an evening party. He was in evening dress with black hat, his sole impedimenta a little black bag and a case of instruments. He was a charming fellow, an Irishman, and at once adapted himself to the situation, his first act being to razzy his tall hat, divest it of its felt, and convert it into a head covering more suitable for tropical wear. Curious is memory. Of the incidents of the voyage, and some more important there must have been, this is the only one I can now recall. When we made Port Curtis, guided by the information obtained from Lieutenant Yule, we kept the south shore. We had seen the Lord Auckland lying at the north side of the harbour, and learnt later that she had grounded on a bank not then chartered, and that her passengers had been put ashore on Facing Island, where they had encamped. Hardly had we let go the anchor when a boat with two men put off from the shore, and the men informed us that they had been sent from Facing Island to sink for water on the mainland. 
but were in deadly fear of the natives whom they had seen assembling in great numbers near where they were to work i said i would send a sergeant and a few men for their protection but on their representation of the very large number of the natives and their hostile attitude i thought it better to land in greater force so hastily getting together some tents a cask of water some ship biscuit and beef i put off with twenty men and took military possession of the spot where is now situated the town named after mr gladstone night had fallen when we got the tents pitched and as the americans say fairly fixed up and having posted sentries tired out i lay down the ground for a bed a travelling valise for a pillow and so to sleep i was awoke by a commotion and a voice saying call the officer rushing out i found that a shower of spears had descended among us all were quickly on the alert and we could see dusky forms moving amongst the trees in the neighbourhood of our camp judging it possible that we might be attacked in force i ordered a few shots to be fired upon which there was a stampede and we were not that night further disturbed in the morning i disembarked all the men telling off some to pitch tents and others to clear away the trees and bush around as we had bought saws and hatchets from the ship this work and scouring the bush in light infantry order within a distance of a mile or so from the camp filled up our first day's occupation the object of scouring the bush was to show the blacks that we were in some force occasionally we saw dusky figures but i would not allow any firing catching sight of a man paddy long raising his musket to fire at a black i shouted to him to drop it and told him that for the first black fellow he shot in cold blood i would shoot him now paddy long was a very good fellow who would not as the saying is harm a fly but his conception doubtless was that we were out on a shooting party and indeed a raid on the blacks was in my time by squatters often so conceived and in cases where the squatters cattle have been speared it is difficult at times to draw an ethical line especially in districts where her majesty's writ does not run we preach the law of right but the older natural doctrine of might has always prevailed so long as brute animal or human is stronger than his fellow it is the old story of the invasion of canaan by the hebrews a desire to spread the benefits of civilization may count for something and the argument that the earth as a whole is the heritage of the human race and is to be occupied in such a way as is most for the advantage of the human race is a forcible one still it must be admitted that without the stimulus of gain progress would be slow and thus we may rejoice that the appetite for gain exists in sufficient strength for the purpose reflections such as these did not occur to me at the time indeed my chief concern was that i had neglected my obvious and primary duty viz to report myself in person to my commanding officer the condition precedent was however where to find him so hailing the thomas lowry i asked them to send a boat while waiting i observed a boat approaching from the east and as it neared i made out captain day in the stern sheets and right glad was i when on receiving my reports he expressed his approval of my proceedings and of the spot selected for our encampment from captain day i learned the particulars of the going ashore of the lord auckland and that the whole party were now encamped on the east or seaside of facing island some days later i paid a visit to the island young henry day who was afterwards in the ninety-ninth having come over with an invitation the distance from my encampment to the spot on which we landed on facing island in the harbour or west side was about six miles and we had to make our way through a mile or so of bush to reach the encampment in going through the bush i had experience of the spider's webs the cordage of which is so strong as to lift off the traveller's hat i found the lord auckland party comfortably encamped on a high ground overlooking the sea they were all in the best of health and spirits and so far as the situation admitted 
certainly had made the best of it. I spent with the party a most enjoyable evening, got a shakedown in a tent, and left early the next morning for my detachment, and found all well. The only diversion for the men was fishing. Near the encampment was good fishing ground, and this fact was probably responsible for the desire of the blacks to expel us from the spot. Bathing was dangerous on account of the sharks. Life was somewhat monotonous. And as our rations were limited to the regulation ones of salt beef, salt pork, and biscuits, and these latter not wholly unconscious of worm and weevil, what are called the pleasures of the table were not for us. Dwellers in the Australian bush are wont to curse the mosquitoes, but they are quite pleasant fellows compared to the sand flies, which here swarmed after sundown. Oft have I left my bed at night, and with a double gauze covering my face and hands inserted in pockets, walked for hours on the beach, and finally thrown myself on the sand, exhausted by the vigil compelled by the sand flies. For some time we heard nothing of the natives, when one day I was told that some were seen on the other side of the flat, at the south side of our encampment. I determined to interview them, and, if possible, to establish friendly relations. I was accompanied by the sergeant only. As we approached, they made signs that we should send back the dog which was following us. This we did, then, that I should lay down the stick I carried. This done, two or three approached us, and by signs invited us to accompany them to the bush. This we did, but halted when we had advanced a little way. Our companions were then joined by others, and they pulled grass and laid it down, motioning us to be seated. We sat down in a circle, the sergeant, myself, and I think half a dozen blacks. They were all men of fine physique, about six feet high, perfectly naked. They were apparently quite friendly, and as they were evidently much interested in our clothing, I divested myself of a coloured necktie I was wearing, and gave it to him who appeared to be a chief. Giving a red pocket-handkerchief to another, the others made signs to possess other articles. But as we did not wish to return to camp in purest naturalibus, we had to limit our gifts. One of the blacks left us for a few minutes, and on his return bought what I took to be the shin-bone of a kangaroo. He made signs of eating, and I endeavoured to convey to him by pointing to the sun that we would, on the following day at the same hour, bring something to eat. On sitting down we were careful to sit facing the bush, and the sergeant now told me that he saw several natives armed with spears among the trees a short distance off. On this I thought it prudent to close our visit. This had to be done with circumspection, without hurry or evidence of suspicion or alarm, and withal, without turning our backs on our assumed friends. Suffice it to say we effected our retreat in safety, from a position at no time free from risk, and at one time fraught with peril. Writing from experience gathered in different parts of Australia, I am inclined to demur to the opinion, widely held, that the Australian black is incapable of civilization, that he is receptive of instruction, where his interests are immediately concerned, is indubitable, and it is hardly realisable that the constructor of the boomerang is incapable of acquiring knowledge. The blacks with us, who had never seen a white man, projected their spears by aid of spear sticks, which gave a powerful aid to propulsion, and used slings which carried stones a considerable distance. As I write, there lies before me a spearhead constructed from a portion of a soda-water bottle, serrated at the sides and notched on both surfaces. It would be capable of inflicting a terrible wound. The ingenuity which must have been brought to bear in this case could certainly be utilised under more favourable conditions. Our expedition was a pioneer one, our mission to locate the future settlement, and ships were to follow from Sydney with free workmen and time-unexpired convicts to construct roads and buildings. 
we had only been some weeks at Port Curtis when a small steamer arrived with orders for the return of the party. The Lord Auckland being disabled, a portion of the party embarked in the Thomas Lowry, amongst them Mrs. Barney and others of the ladies. During the return voyage to Sydney, an unpleasant incident occurred. Our captain was an excellent sailor, but on occasion he was inclined to partake too freely of a brown brandy of exceptional quality. Enforced inaction during the time his ship lay in Port Curtis probably aggravated his failing, and an attack of delirium tremens developed a few days after we left Port Curtis. There was nothing for it but to confine him to his cabin. The chief officer on whom the command now devolved was a young man without experience of Australian waters, and making the land he asked me to go aloft and see if I could recognise a headland. This I readily did at Nobby Island at the entrance of Newcastle Harbour about eighty miles from sydney and in due course we made sydney heads when the pilot took charge colonel barney captain day and the remainder of the party remained for some months in north australia and on their return put into brisbane where i was then quartered and i learnt that before they had left they planted on facing island and on the mainland pumpkins and other seeds and left live stock for the benefits of those who should come after them Gladstone is now a city, and Port Curtis ranks as a port only second to that of Sydney, admitted to be the finest in the known commercial world. End quote. Major de Winton retains one interesting memento of the foundation of Gladstone in the following communication. Reader's note letter begins Port Curtis, 18th of March, 1847. Lieutenant de Winton, commanding detachment 99th. Sir, the natives have been heard this morning, close to where I am discharging timber for Her Majesty's Government in the Creek. For the protection of the timber and the lives of those landing, I have the honour to request you will send a small detachment on board the cutter. I have the honour to be, sir, your obedient servant, J. S. Whiteley. Reader's note, letter ends. The back of this letter is thus endorsed. Quote, in compliance with this letter, I have ordered one corporal and three men to proceed immediately on board the cutter mentioned. G. J. De Winton, Lieutenant, 99th Regiment. Reader's note, letter ends. End of chapter 14. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.